I'm nervous. <coughs> My name is Pebble, and I am a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. And Esther, you did wonderful. Thank you so much. And I do feel honored to be here and to be asked to speak before this distinguished group of people. And it's nice to look out over everyone, and there's a lot, a lot of familiar faces, a lot of new faces. But I notice every face has a smile on it, and I think that's really a tribute to this program. Oh, here we go. Well, uh, I was born the third child of four children. I have two older sisters and a younger brother. And my name is Pebble legally. It is not a nickname, and I'm before the Flintstones. <laughs> which dates me right there. But, um, you know, with a name like Pastor said, you don't remain anonymous too long. So I do not have any anonymity in this program. And if my spouse doesn't have very much either because he calls himself Mrs. Pebbles a lot of times. <laughs> but um, I grew up in a real small rural town in about 120 miles from here. And uh, I guess you'd say I had a fairly normal life. I had a mother and a father who loved me. We weren't real rich. In fact, we were poor, but I didn't really know how poor we were because I had everything a child could ever want. Uh, my parents were hardworking, God-fearing people, and I always had plenty of clothes, enough to eat. I had a roof over my head and a bed. In fact. My parents, my father died six months before my parents were married 50 years. So, you know, I had this really very normal, normal childhood, I guess you'd say. Most of my extended family and my parents tried to instill in me all of their, their ethics, which were good ethics. At the time, I didn't think so. There was something within me that was always different because I always thought that my life was the most boring, uneventful life there was. I was never satisfied. My one ambition was to leave home and go and explore the world. And my parents were the type of parents where, and I was born in the early, early 50s, in fact, 1950. <laughs> so um, my parents were real, real strict. You know, it was like um, when I was growing up, they wanted to know, who I was with, where I was going, what we were going to be doing, and I hated all that. I hated that restriction that they put on me, you know, because I didn't like that. They're doing things, and I realize now I was probably wanting to go out there and do things I didn't really need to be doing. <clears throat> but I had to, there was also that part of me that, you know, kind of fell into whatever they wanted me to be. In fact, that was what I did most of my life. Um, I discovered that if I did whatever was expected of me, then I was liked. And that's really what I was after, I guess, all along was that love. It depended on what group I was in is how I would act. And that kind of followed me through all my life. Um, I never was satisfied with what I had. I always wanted more. I wanted something else. And I always I realize now that that's what I, what I wanted was excitement. I loved excitement. Um, 
the day after I grabbed, my parents had always told us, you know, as long as you live under my house, you under my rules. And it's like I said, those were those strict rules that I just didn't like. So the day after I graduated, I left home and I came to the big city of Baton Rouge. And I thought, man, I have arrived. Because I had come from this very small, small town, you know, and I got here and I saw the big lights, the bright lights. And I found these places they call bar rooms. And I found there's where my excitement was. And I never realized exactly how much excitement was there. I never had been exposed to any type of alcoholism growing up. No one in my family drank. Uh, in fact, I lived in a county in Mississippi where it was considered, quote, dry. I didn't realize, as I look back now, I realized it wasn't as dry as I thought, but my household was dry, I can say that much. Um, when I got here, though, I met some people. We started going to these ballrooms because that's where you went to dance. And I always have loved to dance. And for those of you who go to the Al-Anon convention, you kind of notice I do like to dance a lot. But um, when I got here, I thought, God, I finally arrived. I can spread my wings. I can be whatever I want to be. There is just no end to the potential that's here. Um, and I thought, you know, this is what I need. This is exactly what I need. It made me feel alive when I went in these ballrooms. And I met these people, and I started... I didn't notice at first, but every person I was attracted to was the, always the one that was closest to the bar and was always probably drinking the most. And there was just something about those people. And it wasn't necessarily the guys. It could be the girls, too. A lot of my friends drank a lot. And I even tried it, I have to admit. But it just didn't agree with them. You know, I have a couple of drinks, and I had to go in the restroom and hug the commode. And that seemed to be the pattern for me. So I learned you get one drink and you hold it in your hand and you just nurse it. And every now and then you put fresh ice cubes in it and they think you've got another <laughs> drink and you don't have to worry about all that. So um, I started hanging out in those places that I really shouldn't have been in because I was very young. I mean, I, I graduated when I was 17. I came down here and I started doing that right off the bat because I was working and kind of going to school at the same time and having this exciting life that I thought I had missed growing up, you know. But I was really too young and I was too naive to be with some of the people I was with, to be in some of the places I was in, and I never realized that. I just, you know, I started falling short of those standards that my parents had set for me. And I realize now that those, you know, for the longest time I resented those things. I thought, God, they are so... But as I grew up, and now I realize, you know, what they were trying to instill in me were good things. They weren't bad things, and they weren't doing that to be hard on me or cruel. They were doing that because that was what was best for me. Uh, while I was in this life of mine, um, I had some roommates who were from Avalds Parish. And every weekend we would go to their hometown to visit. I never, by this time too, my parents had moved to Baton Rouge because I, my two older sisters were already living down here and um, I was down here and I had a, my younger brother and they decided, you know, all the families down here, so I met, that's the type of parents I had. They moved where their children were. They never once said, you can't go. They decided because all of us were here, they were going to move here. 
So I didn't really have to go home on weekends. I could go with my friends to their hometown because you know about Avalos Parish, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's a bunch of Cajuns, and they love to party. And at one time, they had a nightclub down there. It was called Ships, and it was the biggest nightclub in Louisiana. And it was a wonderful place, the most exciting place I'd ever been to. Now, while I was there, there every now and then would come this guy walk through. There was a lot of guys that walked through that I eyed and thought were wonderful, but there was this one particular guy. And it was during this time that, you know, you had the same color socks as you did shirt. You wore these white Levi jeans. And this guy had on this peach color, and I can't say peach because he thinks that's bad now, but anyway, to me it was a peach colored shirt with these socks, those white jeans, very dark complected, curly hair, and he was gorgeous. I just thought he was the cat's meow. Well, he would walk every time he did, and I also noticed that when he left that place, he went out and got in this really fine looking car. It was a white Trans Am with these blue racing stripes. I also noticed while he was in that bar, he drank a lot. And I also noticed after he drank a lot, he got in a lot of fights. But I thought that was even the more exciting because he usually came out on top. So I thought, hmm. Well, it was about this time, too, that I decided, you know, it's time for me to find my knight in shining armor. It's time for me to have that one person in my life, that really meaningful relationship. And I didn't really set out to get this guy but somehow or other, it just kind of worked out that way because one Sunday afternoon, I was in a bar and I had gone over my limit of one drink. I had taken two drinks. Well, I was sick. And I didn't want to go in the restroom because this was just a one-style type. That's selfish for me to go in there and take that up. So I decided I'd go outside behind the cars and be sick. And while I was out in that parking lot, he drove up in that fine car with those blue racing stripes. And he came over and said, you know, can I help you? And I said, oh, I just, you know, I think it's something I ate. <laughs> I didn't want him to know that I couldn't hold my liquor because, you know, I was with that kind of crowd. But he said, well, you know, what you need is some fresh air. Let's go for a ride. Well, that was the only invitation I needed because I had been a, a goal of mine for a long time is I wanted to take a ride in that vehicle with him. So I got in the car with him and we went out to this, and I realize now it's Lover's Lane, but I don't think that's what I thought it was then. I thought we were going for a ride in the country. <laughs> if you don't think I wasn't naive. Um, and I had, he had been drinking somewhere else, but we got in this car and we went out there and now, here's where when we tell our stories, things differ. Because <laughs> we went out on that country road, and it was getting dark. And I was sick. I still didn't feel good. He'd had too much to drink. And I fell asleep. He passed out. Now, if you want the other side, you have to ask him. Because that's not how he remembers it. But you have to remember, he was drunk, so. Um, and we stayed out there. Well, I was still living in Baton Rouge, and I was had rode down to the 
of Oil's Parish with some friends of mine, but we really did fall asleep. We were out there for a long time. Well, by the time we got back to this wall where my friends were, they were frantic because they thought something had happened to me. They didn't even know what had happened. I didn't even bother. You know, I was going for a ride. So when we, I got back to the bar, they were sitting there ready to go. It's like, we got to go back. we got to go to work in the morning because by then it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. So I got the call with them, and I just said goodbye to him, and I rushed off. And I never, never thought that I would probably see him again until the next weekend. Well, I got home really late, got up the next morning, went to work. Didn't feel too well, but went to work. Uh, that afternoon when I came home, there was a couple of people sitting on our front stoop because I lived in downtown Baton Rouge where they have the old houses that they'd converted into apartments and they had this front porch with some steps and there was a couple of guys sitting out there and the minute I drove into the driveway though I realized who one of them was it was him this was my knight in shining armor I thought you know he looks so good you know this could be the one offshore and he was supposed to be leaving that day to go back to work and uh, for some reason or other, and if you just don't believe in these God things, there's got to be one of them because he had this brand new car, and as he was coming through Baton Rouge, the car broke, and he had to put it in the shop, and he couldn't get any further. He was going to have to wait for it to be fixed. And so he was sitting on my doorstep that day. Well, needless to say, this was in probably February, early March of 1970. He never went back offshore again. <laughs> Quit his job, and by May 23rd, we were married. <laughs> now, I was this little Protestant Southern Baptist girl from Mississippi, and I was marrying this Catholic Cajun from Marksville. <laughs> In the process of telling everyone, I meant we immediately announced, you know, we are madly in love and we're getting married. But really what it was, was I had been taught by my parents, you know, you don't have sex till you get married. So I told him, I said, you know, if you want to sleep with me, we got to get married. Now, that's a real good reason to get married, but <laughs> that's what happened. So um, we, I mean, within a month, though, when we were... Together, we started telling everybody, oh, we're getting married soon, we're getting married soon, you know. So his family started planning this big Catholic wedding, and mine started planning this big Protestant wedding. And he wasn't really a um, Baptist wedding, rather, but he wasn't too happy with that because he knew at those Baptist weddings they didn't have liquor. So um, he convinced me, or we convinced each other, really, kind of, we needed to elope. So we eloped. But they were in the throes of planning these weddings because I... He was the oldest, you know, and we didn't want to disappoint him. So we were married for about three months before anybody found out. And this should kind of tell you how our life together would start out. Um, one morning, my sister came to my apartment, and something had happened that she needed me to babysit her little boy and girl. And when she knocked on the door, we were still in bed asleep. And you have to remember, they didn't realize we were married. And she walks in, and he's still in bed asleep, and we'd come out of the same bed. So she was horrified. I mean, I had to explain everything. I had to drag out the marriage license. I had to, you know, prove to them that I was not a fallen woman. Um, I don't know why, but I did not realize 
that alcohol paid such a large role in our relationship in the early years. At first it was fun because, like I said, to me that was always the exciting Really exciting because, as most of you know, when alcohol is involved, things happen. And from a little girl who came from this really small town, I mean, anything happening was exciting to me. It didn't necessarily always have to be good. Even the bad was, you know, something for me to be a part of, and I felt real special. Um, the disease, though, as we all know, too, is progressive. And... I can say my husband is not an, was never an everyday drinker. He was what I, you know, the big book even explains it as a binge drinker. And very, very soon I realized that whenever he drank, problems occurred. Things happened that I didn't always like. Um, I used to think, you know, what am I doing wrong? I mean, you know, why does he have to drink to this excess? Or why, when he drinks, does he have to act this way? You know, maybe I did something wrong. Um, I learned very early in our marriage, too, that when he drank, he did things that embarrassed me. And I didn't always like it. He would always make sure for one reason or other, it's like I said, I was Southern Baptist, so any function that he knew there was no alcohol, he wouldn't go with me. So pretty soon I started not going to things with my family because I knew that if I went, he's not going to go with me. And how is that going to look? You know, I was in this period of where I thought, well, you know, this is really embarrassing for me to show up at a function, he's not here, and then I have to explain. I didn't have anything else to... Uh, do with my family as long as it didn't involve alcohol because he wouldn't be with me and I didn't want anybody to think any less of me. Um, I started suffering the effects of his alcoholism real early. Um, I started feeling like he lies to me so I started mistrusting him. I was real, real angry because I didn't understand why is this happening to me? You know, why am I the one that is having to go through this? I didn't realize what was going on. I didn't know what alcoholism was. To me, everything was about him. He was causing all the problems. I thought if he just straightened up. Um, I started having resentments because he didn't behave the way he was supposed to in front of people. Whenever he drank, like I said, problems happen. I mean, he always created a scene that seemed like. And I got real, real protective of our, quote, marriage. I was real protective. I didn't want anyone to know what was going on. I didn't want anyone to see that elephant that was sitting in our living room. And as much um, one of the symptoms of this disease is the physical violence. And it wasn't long before that started in our marriage. And I'm not to say that physical violence is right under any circumstances, but I have to admit I provoked a lot of it because there were times when he would come in, he'd been drinking, he didn't drink at home, he always drank out, he was a bar drinker, and he'd come home and he'd tell me, leave me alone, don't bother me. And that was like an invitation to say, come on, get in my face. And that's exactly what I did, you know. And I realize now a lot of times I did that because... When something happened the next day, the remorse I saw in his face, the apologies I received, 
the him trying to tell me, you know, I'm so, so sorry. I love that. I love to see that look on his face the next morning. Because most of the time he didn't remember. Because the violence wasn't such that there was any signs of it the next day. It was usually a lot of pulling, shoving, and that type thing. But it was still violence, physical violence. And there was also emotional violence. And I didn't know how else to handle it other than the way I was. I made sure no one knew about it. Um, In fact, um, during the marriage, I got real good at hiding things. And I got real good at the same things the alcoholics do. You know, I could lie as good as he could. I could cheat as good as he could. I could steal as good as he could. I could do anything as good as he could because I felt like those were the things I used as a defense. You know, it was like he got an awful lot of DWIs. Um, in fact, I think probably 15 or more. But helping him with that, too. Um, he would get a DWI and his license would be taken away for a while. I thought, you know, he can't drive without license. So we would create a personality for him or a person, and we'd go down and we'd get him another license and another name. And I was on the document end of that. You know, I could come up with these documents that he could uh, present so that he could get a new license. I mean, we've even gone to Texas and got licensed. I mean, you know, I was really good at that, like I said. It was amazing. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, at least he wasn't out there driving without a license. God forbid he get picked up and he doesn't have a driver's license. You know, forget the fraud and everything else I did. It was just total insanity. Um, it went on like this for a long time. And toward the end of um, the drinking, though, um, we had always been each other's best friends. I have to admit that. We never had children. And in fact, as you kind of figured up, we'll be married 29 years in May, but we've never had any children. So we were always each other's best friends. Like on the days, I mean, he could go weeks without drinking. And when he did, that was fine. It was like we were on a honeymoon. It was wonderful. But I always knew, toward the end, I always knew that sooner or later it was going to happen. And the chaos would start up again. And I would start planning from one binge to the next on how I was going to handle it. I know one time, too, and I share all this about him because he's given me permission. Um, We lived next door to my parents for about seven years. And um, one day in the newspaper on the front page, says, Baton Rouge man arrested on 11 counts. And it had the Baton Rouge man's name, and it was my husband. My parents saw this, and I was so very my parents that it was not him <laughs> now like I say you know I I don't know how all this came about but I got really good at it you know I could hide that elephant and um, so when he went to treatment it was a decision he made on his own and I had nothing to do with it by that time I had kind of quit going with him to places I definitely quit riding with him because I mean, you know, I had an experience with him one time where I was riding with him. We went 120 miles an hour down the interstate, and I decided I was going to jump out like a real bright person that I was. And because he was drunk in the car, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to be in the car with a drunk, so I'm going to jump out. <laughs> that makes lots of sense. But very early, you know, 
pretty soon I quit going with him places. Whenever we went somewhere and I knew there was going to be alcohol there and he was going to drink, I would drive my car, you know, because I didn't want to get in the car with him. I thought, real good, you're going to, you know, take care of yourself that way. Uh, we stopped going to more and more places together. And um, finally, when he decided to go into treatment, he came home from work one day and something had happened. And he said, you know, I have a problem. And he had other issues also, but he says, uh, I need help. He said, will you help me? Well, I was in that mode, as you know, so I looked on my insurance book and I knew that it paid for treatment and I saw what places it would pay for, so I saw the child center on there, so I called them up. I went on to work that day and I called them up and they said, yeah, you know, come on in, we have to do this. I guess it's a pre-interview or whatever it is and um, see if, you know, there's a problem there. Well... Sure enough, he qualified. <laughs> Amazing, you know. Um, so he, at that time, though, he went, he, this was 13 years ago, and that's when they had the in-stay thing. So he went in for his treatment, um, and um, I went out to the hard, cold, cruel world. Well, um, I was very, very fortunate because during the family week, the person I had is my counselor, and normally they have another a they have an AA. They have a recovering alcoholic doing these, but for some reason or other, God knew what I needed. And uh, the two weeks I had my family week, I had a recovering Al-Anon, <coughs> and she made quite an impression on me. You know, um, I realized one day I would, we would go every night for two weeks, and uh, one night. We went and we had this film, and it was, I have never seen this film before. I don't know where it came from, and I think it's another one of those God things. But in this film, it showed how the family deals with the disease. You know, it's, we have these windows, and in each window, person. To the outside world, we're one person. To the family within the house, we're one person. To the alcoholic, we're someone else. To ourselves, we look another way. You know, to our close family and friends, we're another way. And I realized, you know, that is exactly how I've been living my life. It's been a lie the whole time. You know, it's like being the seven faces of Eve or whatever, the three faces of Eve. You know, I was a personality for whatever occasion I needed to be. And that's how I coped with this disease. I could not let anyone know what was going on in my house. Well, I remember coming out of that session and they were always waiting for us as we walked out because we weren't supposed to have anything to do with them during the week, you know. But they would stand there and they'd wave. And, you know, you'd go by and you'd wave at them like that. Well, I remember coming out that night and I was so angry because God revealed to me what was wrong with me. You know, I was the, quote, enabler. So when I came out that night, I didn't with a, fin with a hand. <clears throat> I waved with the finger. And... I can remember going home all the way, and I was crying these buckets of tears. I was just, oh, so upset. I said, I cannot believe that he made me become this person that was in that film. You know, I still had that sick thinking. And I remember getting home, and the phone's ringing, you know, and I'd pick it up, and it'd be him. I'd hang up on him, and I was trying to decide, do I ever even want to have anything to do with him again? I mean, you know, the only way I'm going to get over this is if I just cut him out of my life. Well, this gracious counselor that I had the next night we went back, she says, Pebble, I understand you had a little problem. I said, yeah. 
said, you know, I, I realize now what happened. I've been the enabler in this the whole time, and the best thing I can do is just leave. And this kind gentlewoman told me, she said, you know, what you need to do is realize that has been affecting your life for, it was 15 years then, and you're not going to be recovered very soon. He said, she said, but do me one favor. She said, you know, give me five years. For five years, work on yourself. Let him work his program, do whatever he needs to do, but for five years, you concentrate on being the best pebble you can be in recovery. And at the end of five years, then make your decision on what you're going to do. Well, I know in Al-Anon we don't give advice. And I thought, God, five years is a long time. But I said, you know, she's got a point. It didn't happen overnight. And besides, what's everybody going to think? Poor man, because by then I had also decided that everybody needed to know that he was in a treatment center for alcoholism and exactly what he had done to me in my life. You know, and he's getting all the, even my mother, bless her heart, she didn't know what to do for him, so she says, send him a get well card. So she sent him this lovely get well card in the treatment center, and that just made me even angrier, because I thought, oh, you know, he's in there at the Holiday Inn, as far as I was concerned, every day, having all this fun, he didn't have anything to do, and I'm out here in the cold, cruel world, facing everybody, and, you know, having to tell everybody that I'm married to this degenerate of a husband that's in treatment because he can't drink like a normal person. But um, I was very fortunate there, too. Like I said, my parents, they were wise enough to let me make all my decisions, but then they were also wise enough to let me live with them. And that's exactly what they did, you know. I never realized that they really knew what was going on. You know, I always thought I hid it that well. But... I didn't. I mean, you know, it was like I can remember there were times when we were at home and he would get angry. We would get in one of those angry arguments and he would get in the car to leave. And I would go screaming. And he'd just pleasantly go and get in the car and leave, you know. And here I am screaming and the neighbors are all seeing me scream so they think I'm the nut. You know, too many of us, I'm sure, remember how that is. Um, and there were even times, you know, when I would get in the car and go leave. In fact, there was a period of about two years where, you know, he was um, going to school at night. And for some reason or other, I just really didn't believe he was going to school. I thought he was having an affair. So I said, you know, I'm going to show him. So one night I just put everything in my car and I took off. Didn't even tell him I was leaving and stayed gone for two years. And he found me naturally, you know, a couple of days. I went to my sister's, and I thought, oh, he's going to call me here. He never did. In fact, he didn't. I think that was on a Thursday night. He didn't even call me to that Monday at work. But for two years, I mean, you know, I went and got an apartment with my brother, and um, we had a dog that we shared custody of. I'd go every Friday afternoon after work, pick up the dog, and bring him to the apartment. Just like a little child, you know. And my brother and my husband were best friends, and he'd come visit my husband, my brother at the apartment kind of ignore me to some degree, and then um, a tragedy happened in his life. His 23-year-old brother was killed as a direct result of the disease, and um, we decided to give it another chance. And it wasn't too long after that, though, that he, you know, he was catalyst into the program himself. Um, early on in my recovery, though, um, I discovered things in Allen. I discovered Allen. I started going to Allen. In fact, my home group is the same as Joyce's, and that's Saturday newcomer at two o'clock. And.
couple of minutes they'll be starting that meeting. Um, and I walked in there and I saw all of these people with smiles on their faces because in the family week I had committed to attending at least one meeting a week. You know, I could do that. And um, I walked in there and I'm always kind of early. In fact, I was a little bit not early today, but I got here first. I, I believe it'd be in places on time. But um, I went to that meeting early, and there was this older gentleman there, and he was making coffee. And um, I walked in, and he was smiling, and he walked up to me, and he put his arms around me and hugged me. And I thought, ugh, this dirty old man, what is this all about? And he says, um, you're new. I can tell that. He says, you know, you're not smiling today. He said, I bet it's been real hard for you, but he said, I can guarantee you one thing, that if you keep walking through this door, that sooner or later, one day you'll come in here smiling. And he was right, because like I said earlier, that to me is the greatest joy of being up here is watching all of your smiling faces. And I kept going to those meetings regularly, and then I discovered that that, you know, that was the first meeting I was told about, so that's the first one I attended. But I realized that wasn't the only meeting. We're very fortunate here. We have lots of meeting in lots of places at lots of times. So I made that commitment. You know, I heard in the AA program that you need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, I thought, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. So I started doing it. And uh, that's just what I needed because I got to meet so many wonderful people that helped me in my recovery. You know, it's like... Miss Ruth called to ask me to do this today, and as everybody knows, she's one of the few people I cannot say no to. So, Esther, you knew what you were doing when you got her to ask me. But um, I started going to those meetings, and then they started, and I started seeing the flyers that they were announcing. You know, they would make the announcements like, there's going to be a Heritage Day on whatever date it was. And it said, you know, an Al-Anon Heritage Day, or they're going to have Al-Anon Area Assembly. And when I read that, it said, only Al-Anons can attend. No one else is welcome. So I'd go home and go, oh, well, I have to go to this. I have to. I'm not a member of anything other than the group. I'm a group, not even a group representative of anything. But I home say, okay, I have to go to Area Assembly. And you can't go because it's just for Al-Anons. So a friend of mine and I would get up and we would, uh, I had another friend whose husband was in treatment with my husband, and we decided we were going to go to every Al-Anon function there was, especially those out of town, because that was a weekend away, and that was <laughs> glorious. Because by then, my resentments had kind of gotten almost into dislike, because I was uncovering my pro problems, you know, but I still kind of wanted to point them back to him. And I wasn't quite sure that he was as sincere as I was in his recovery. <clears throat> so um, I can I remember I used to go to Alexandria and we'd go to Zen then in Alexandria to area assembly. And uh, one of the very first area assemblies I went to, um, this friend of mine and I were sitting out by the pool, and I think it was in an August hot day, and we were out there in our bathing suits. We were really into that service work. <clears throat> And this little lady comes running up to us and going, Come near in your room. You have room for one more. We have this lady over here that needs someone. Well, as all of you know, that was Clara. 
do not know her very well, I thought, how dare she? You know, how does she know? And at that time, I was smoking, so I said, well, you know, we smoke. Both of us smoke. She's going to have to put up with our smoke. And this kind little old lady, who most of you know, too, is Daisy L., said, oh, hon, that's okay. I don't mind. So Clara and God put Daisy L. in our room. And that was also another big turning point for me. The whole time she's in our room with us, we're both sitting there talking about them and what they've done to us and what we're going to do to them. And she's just smiling and not saying much of anything. And uh, at the end of my talk today, I'm going to tell you exactly what she told us in that room that made a really big difference in my life because that was a turning point because I thought... And then she shared with us some of her experience, strength, and hope. And I thought, you know, this one lady is wonderful. She's been in the program this long. She seems happy. She can come in this room and put up with these two insane people, and it just didn't seem to bother her. So very, and that's also when I decided that, you know, maybe service work is what I need. So um, I started doing some service work. And the first service work I did was for the Saturday Newcomer Group. The lady who was the GR said she was the GR because she would be the GR, but she couldn't really go to those out-of-town trips to area assembly because her husband wasn't in recovery and he didn't really like it. And she just wasn't able to go. And I thought, oh. This is it. I can go. I know I can go. I like going, in fact. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll be the alternate. She said, because as the alternate, you can go, you know, and represent the group. So I started doing that. Pretty soon, she kind of dropped out of the picture, period, and that kind of pushed me into being the GR. Well, um, by going to area assembly, by going to things like Heritage Day, to going to meetings, I got to look at all the people that, are in the room, like people like this today, they're in the room. And I looked at those people, and I kept hearing in those meetings, you know, pick out the people that you want to be like the most. And that's kind of what I did. You know, I looked at people like Clara. I, that's what I was talking about earlier. Clara was over here working the room. Did y'all notice that? She went from table to good. And she probably knows everybody in here. And that's what makes her great. Um, and... Those same people, every time I saw them, though, they had a smile on their face. They had joy in their heart. That was a genuine smile, and I envy that. I thought, you know, how can they feel that way when I even knew some of them lived with active alcoholism? You know, and I didn't even live with an active alcoholic anymore. He was in the program. Um, one of the first things, though, that kind of put a bad turn on my road to recovery was when um, a DSAC flyer came out, and that's Deep South Alateen Conference. And on that flyer it says, Alanines and AAs welcome. Well, that's all he needed. He knew he could go to that. <laughs> and I got a little... Okay, it's on there. I can't hide that. You know, I should have erased it before I gave him the flyer, but I didn't. And so he decided he was going to go to that. The only good thing about that, too, was I didn't have to stay in the room with him there. I could stay in the room with the kids. And up until then, too, I have to admit, and even he will admit, that this program of AA was not exactly what he thought he needed. He was not that enthusiastic about it. And 
he shares too that he thought because he didn't fit in. But uh, that DSAC in 1987 was the turning point in both of our recovery. Um, by then, I had also become an Alateen sponsor. And um, for those of you who are not a part of the Alateen program, who've never been around some of these youngsters, you're missing an awful lot because their recovery through this program is, to me, a miracle, you know. You know, if you think about it, we are to some degree in this disease, and it's almost by choice. And we also have the option at any time, because we're adults, we can leave. But some of these kids live with it on a daily basis, and they don't have a choice. They're there because they have to be. That's their father, or that's their mother, or their brother, or whatever. And yet, too, I see them work in their program, and they are a joy to be with. And that's why today that's still the biggest part of my life is DSAC and those Alateens. They're very, very important to me. Um, but we went to this DSAC, and for some reason or other, God decided this was the place that he was going to speak to not only me, but to my husband. And our lives took a big turn right there. We both became very earnest in our recovery, and we decided that, you know, this is what we both needed. And um, that's when all those miracles to happen in my life that so many of you hear so many people talk about. For me, really, one of the first miracles was that I even got to Al-Anon because I really thought that I had enough savvy, smarts, whatever you want to call it. You know, anybody that could get somebody a driver's license in two or three different names, you know, ought to be able to take care of themselves. And besides, you know, I'd kind of held him up. Like, he'd had all of these DWIs and had never gotten past second offense. That's a miracle, too. But I know now that's God's miracle, not mine. But um, it also, one of the other miracles was suddenly my attitude changed because I also learned by going to the meetings and listening to people that he really wasn't that bad, horrible person I thought he was. He was just a very sick person. I know very early in the recovery, too, as I said earlier, physical violence was something that happened in our household, maybe not so much on a regular basis, but often. I think one of the biggest miracles was the first time he told me, he says, you know, I can't ever promise that I won't do it again. He said, the only thing I can say is that I'll try. And I stand before you today to tell you that to this day, it's never happened again. And there was a time in my life when I was scared to death of him. He's not very big, as most of you know, but he has quite a temper. And he just scared me. A lot of times it wasn't even what he did to me physically. It was a mental abuse. I was just frightened to death of him. And today I am no longer frightened of him. And I think that in itself is a miracle. Uh, I had to learn to accept things as they were, just like I had to learn to accept him as he was. I had to realize that, you know, my idea of what recovery was and his idea may be two different things. And my pace of recovery and his pace of recovery may be two different things. And even today, on any given day, ahead of me on that road to recovery than I am, and I may be far ahead of him. But I'm not going to stand and wait for him because usually he'll kind of run and catch up or either I'll run and catch up. You know, those are the choices we have today. Um, I had to learn to give up control of the universe. It was amazing to me that... Um, Whenever I discovered that I was powerless and I stopped helping people, 
suddenly I had all this free time on my hand. I no longer had to give people advice. I didn't have to do for people anymore. You know, it was really easy for me to say, no, thank you, I'm not able to do that. Because I didn't feel like I had to fix everybody. I was started letting people do what they needed to do. And when I did that, I got all this free time that I could devote to Al-Anon and do all this service work. Uh, and in my life, I got serenity. I no longer had that confusion because there were many mornings that I woke up disease and I would look at him to see how I was going to feel. You know, I looked at him to see how my day was going to be. Or I could be in the middle of my day and something would happen with him and my whole day would change. The plans I made would have to change because it had to fit with him. And I no longer had to do that. And from the dis and from that despair, I gained faith. With the knowledge, I gained hope. And when I surrendered, I gained love. My burden was released. From insecurity, I gained self-esteem. And I was finally able to surrender my will to God's will. And that was the scariest thing I ever did because I grew up believing that there was a God that this God was a punishing God. And he had this little book that kept these little scores. If you were bad, you got a black mark. And one day, sooner or later, you were going to have to come, quote, face to face with him and answer for all those mistakes. And I knew I had a long list because I was always rebellious. It scared me. So very, very early in our marriage, I turned from God. And I thought, you know, maybe if I just hide myself enough, he won't know I'm here. But I realize now that that's not what happened. God just gave me my free will and let me do what I needed to do to be here today. And um, today I have a different concept of God. Today my God is a loving God. He's a God of understanding. He's a God who loved me enough to get me to this program and gave me people like you so that my life would be better. Um, in Al-Anon, too, I learned there were certain things I'm asked to give. You know, they, they say this program is a program of um, that, you know, there's no must in it. But, you know, I kind of differ with that. I think there are things that we must do in Al-Anon. And some of those things are in meetings regularly. Uh, those first 90 days when I was in those meetings every day, I think that was when most of my healing happened. Um, I think we must learn to smile at the newcomers. You know, when somebody comes in a meeting, I remember how I felt when I first came into the program. That first meeting I went to, I was scared to death because I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know who I was going to meet. And I didn't know if it could help me. That was my biggest fear, I think. Um, you can set up the meeting rooms, make coffee. Um, you can share with the group. You know, that's the biggest thing. I think to me, one of my favorite groups to go to is an open discussion meeting where everyone shares, where everyone's allowed to share. Because I gain so much even today when I hear people, you know, share their experience, strength, and hope. And it may be something they've said before, but today, one particular day, I might hear something that that day I need to hear. I can also and I can commit to service. And... Um, like I said, I've always been in service work from very early on, and there are people in my life that just won't let me be any other way. Um, I also have another part of the program that I think is wonderful, and it's called attachment. And very early when I talked about going away to those area assemblies and all that stuff, I thought, you know, that's what I'm doing, detaching. 
because I heard about that. So I thought, detach, detach. Um, but I learned later on that detachment was something quite different. And I have kind of the 12 guides that detachment were. Someone gave them to me, and I've kind of lived by them ever since then. But it says, detachment gave me these 12 guides. Not to lie for the alcoholic. Not to protect the alcoholic from consequences of his actions. Not to allow abuse, verbal or physical. Not to be preoccupied with the alcoholic so I couldn't enjoy my life. Not to protect the alcoholic from of people with alcohol because very early on I tried to do that you know I thought okay now we really can't go to any other functions but those Baptists <laughs> and not to set boundaries and then have them bend and what that means was when I say I mean what I say and say what I mean and that was really really difficult for me because I wavered so much and uh, I learned not to criticize that was even harder because I would bite my tongue in half <coughs> but that's one of the hardest things I had to learn. And not to resent that I couldn't cure his disease because I thought if he loved me enough, then it wouldn't be this way. And I also learned not to find out of guilt. And by that I mean if most of you live with an alcoholic, you know that they're very good at giving you the guilt trip. You know, it's like today I'm here and it's his choice not to be here. And that I walked out of the house and he laid his head back down on that pillar. It was, I'll pray for you. And I didn't feel guilty in leaving him there. And I also learned not to lose my temper and lecture and moralize, go blame, threaten him. Because I had to learn that he was sick. He wasn't bad. And uh, I learned that I don't need to hold all these high expectations of what I thought life was going to be because you know that white car that we rode off into the sunset together is no longer here. Alcoholism got that too around an oak tree. Um, but um, I prayed in the very beginning because he was a bar drinker. I said, you know, God, all I want is to, for him to stay at home with me. I don't want him to go to those bars drinking anymore. God answered that prayer. Today he is home 24 hours a day. <laughs> he is not able to work due to circumstances beyond And he is there constantly. He goes to most Al-Anon functions with me. He goes to every DSAC there is and is a very active part of it. He loves the program. <laughs> we have gone to San Diego, to the AA International, and it was there that I really realized the scope and the worldwide fellowship of Al-Anon and how really big it was because they had not only thousands of AA people there, there were thousands of Al-Anon people there. Um, it was just like unbelievable. Unless you've attended an international, you just cannot comprehend it. So this summer past summer rather and last year when they had the Al-Anon International I was so excited to be able to say you know that's my goal to go to the Salt Lake City and the alcoholic went with me in fact we have bought a motor home and that's how we do most of our conventions and that but we went to this the Al-Anon International in Salt Lake and it was wonderful and um, we enjoyed it now I mean we enjoy our life together now on most days, there are still some days when I wish they would, you know, it's good to go to a closed Al-Anon meeting is all I can say. <laughs> you know, and uh, 
the people we have met in this program go from coast to coast. And, uh, in fact, at, from the AA International, we met some people from Russia that came and spent a couple of weeks with us. And that was a exciting time for me when I had three recovering alcoholics in my house at once. Two of them I couldn't understand, so... <laughs> it was different, very different. Uh, uh, I have to ask myself quite often now, though, you know, in Al-Anon, we go to these meetings and we get this, quote, recovery, and we're supposed to give back. I have to realize, too, because... I have a very good sponsor, and I sponsor people. I have to realize that in sponsoring people, it's real important to not give all of myself away. I have to realize that being a sponsor is something that is a, um, a privilege and an honor to me, and that it keeps me on my toes and ha makes me have to work the program almost, you know, because I don't want them to get ahead of me. And there's a couple of my sponsorees here today, and that kind of makes me feel good to know that they're involved in Al-Anon and they attend meetings on a regular basis. Um, and like I said, there was just one thing I wanted to share with you that I was told at that first area assembly I ever attended when Daisy L. was there. And I think it's true because um, it says... When the idea is not right, God says no. When the time's not right, God says slow. When I'm not right, God says grow. When all is right, God says go. And I think since February 8th, 1986, God has told me to go. And I appreciate all of you for being here. And I continue to thank you for always being at those meetings that I go to and being a part of my life because today I stand before you and Al-Anon in recovery and most of it is due to people like you and most of you in the audience were there when I first went to that first meeting so I say thank you and remember our heritage because it's real important because I know I am so grateful that someone had that meeting there for me heritage alive when I needed it so desperately and made my life so different because I don't want to end on this note but when Esther was talking about you know the service positions right now I'm just a GR in a group and that's wonderful I've gone back to being a GR and some of it has to do because I get to go to our Al-Anon World Service Office twice a year and my responsibility is to keep the building beautiful because I'm on the executive committee for real property, whatever that's supposed to be. But I just go there to make sure that building stays nice and is physically kept up. And that's what I do for a living, so I kind of know what I'm doing there. But every time I walk in that door, it is awesome to me to realize that from that office, so many thousands and thousands of people are touched by this program that gave me such hope. So again, I say thank you. Oh, wow. Wasn't that wonderful? Gosh, I feel like I've had a... Two meetings in one there. 
home. Pebble, we've got a little gift for you. I wanted to mention something, though. You've heard how a pebble, when you throw it in the water, how it makes a circle around it, and it just spreads out and spreads out and touches the shores and so many people and things around. Well, Pebble, today you really touched a lot of it in this little pond. Except this is in remembrance of us. Oh, thank you. Oh, I threw the ivy. Look how pretty it was. And then there's a little candle on the side. Hope you like it. And now Ken is going to do the closing, and right after him, Louis, uh, Lucy F. <laughs> My little Al-Anon buddy over here is going to sing the Lord's Prayer, and that's going to be a special treat, you know. I'm Ken. In closing, I would like to say that the opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you liked and leave the rest. The things you heard were spoken in confidence and should be treated as confidential. Kent the walls of this room and the confines of your mind. A few special words for those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. The welcome we gave you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, we'll dis you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the key.
Thank you so much, Ken and Bob. Soon we're going to have the bingo. If you notice those little arrangements on the table, there should be enough little treats in them for each of you to have something sweet for your sweet tooth. And please feel free to take them, but leave the little containers there, please. <laughs> Somebody's already tried to take the containers. You can't do that. Uh, but do take, do take the little treats. And uh, while we're setting up for the bingo, uh, I'm going to ask Pat to go ahead and read that little spirituality thing. She had a little piece from uh, our latest book, Having Had a Spiritual Awakening. I hope they listen. Okay, I'd like to read... Uh little article from Having Had a Spiritual Awakening, our latest book. Al-Anon co-founder Lois W. said, The word spirituality means so much it is hard to define. I think that spirituality is living a life that has a deeper meaning than the search for daily necessities. If we live spiritually in our daily life, then we find deeper fulfillment for ourselves. Every activity can have a spiritual motive. The theme of finding a deeper meaning in daily life serves as a thread that connects the fabric of the stories that follow. In many different voices, they describe ways of living that have revealed a, deep, revealed a deeper meaning than the search for daily necessities.